Welcome to Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. Tonight on Socalo Radio, Walter Russell Mead, one of the country's leading scholars of American foreign policy, outlines the themes of his latest book, God in Gold, Britain, America, and the Making of the Modern World. In a brilliant and funny talk, Mead contends that what he calls the Anglo-American mind was crucial to developing the global maritime supremacy of Britain and the United States. He touches on the religious ideas of philosopher Henry Bergson, the economic ideas of Adam Smith, and the evolutionary theories of Charles Darwin to point to a particularly future-oriented religious and cultural outlook in those two world powers. Because of this outlook, the global trade fostered by Meade's Anglo-American model promotes open society, liberal values and institutions, and welcomes others to participate as long as they are willing to play by the established rules. Meade demonstrates that the United States, even with its diversity and trenchant political disagreements, is still operating under the same geopolitical strategy. Recorded before a live audience at the Los Angeles Central Library as part of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, here is Walter Russell Mead. I want to congratulate uh, the audience on a great show of courage because you've come to hear one of the most unfashionable messages that anybody is going to be delivering in Los Angeles or perhaps anywhere else this year. As I was working this book out, I was really hoping I'd be able to figure out some way, no, 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 all of this isn't wrong, and I could come out with something that was kind of trendy and cool, but no, you know. Uh, unfortunately, the best I can do is to come out with basically these four points. Anglo-American power has built the modern world, the world that we live in today, that power rests on some cultural qualities that are found in, in Anglo-American power. Worse yet, it has to do with the, with the way that Anglo-American religion and capitalism are such good matches for each other. Made in hell, some would say, and that might be true, but they still match. Number three, unfortunately, despite periodic waves of optimistic utopianism, the Anglo-Americans are probably not going to succeed in building the sort of universal, peaceful, liberal, democratic order that we keep imagining we are about to build. But number four, this order that the Anglo-Americans have built probably isn't going to fall anytime soon either. And if that ain't dark, discouraging, and unfashionable, I don't know what is. <laughs> So let's, let's talk first about this order that they've built, this maritime system, as I call it, because it really is kind of based on sea power. What I thought the best thing to do tonight would be to go ahead and just rip the secrets off and, and just explain to you the five-point Anglo-American secret master plan for global domination. You know, this is on radio, but hopefully only the right people will be listening <laughs> to the program. And actually, we Americans should be very glad that there aren't intellectual property rights in foreign policy or we'd be owing very large royalties to the British because we basically stole the five-point plan from them. However, actually, it wasn't even the British who invented it. It was the Dutch about 300 years ago. So if the Dutch could somehow come after us in court, they might be able to get their world system back. But anyway, there are five elements in this stance, this approach to the world that the Anglo-American world has, has had, it's not quite a foreign policy or a grand strategy. This is, is not so much, it, it, it's as much what we are as it is what we do. It's a set of relations and a set of ideas that we keep coming back to over and over again, even when we're not sure that we want to do it. I mean, for example, I, I start God and Gold, the book off, with a quote from Oliver Cromwell in the 17th century. He's asking, who are our enemies, he says, and why do they hate us? <laughs> and his answer is, 
It's the league of all the evil men on earth. And why do they hate us? Because the evil that is in them sees the good and the liberty, and he used the word liberty, that we have here in this island. And the evil that is in them naturally hates the good that is in us. Now, I don't actually think that George W. Bush went back and studied the speeches of Oliver Cromwell. But if you think about it, this is the same speech that Ronald Reagan made, his evil empire speech, that the evil of the Soviet Union hates the freedom that's here. And we know that Peggy Noonan, who wrote that speech, we can be absolutely confident that Peggy Noonan didn't read (laughs) Oliver Cromwell. As a good Irish American, that would be the last thing she would read. So what we have here is, is a way of thinking about the world that people come to independently, I think, on the basis of some persistent cultural beliefs and structures. And it's not just about dividing the world into good and evil and and seeing the latest struggle as, as an apocalyptic struggle between liberty and tyranny for the future of the world, but there are a lot of other pieces to this kind of cultural approach that we have. So the, back to the global plan, the, the, the protocols of the elders of Greenwich. <laughs> people just think they need to worry about those other people in terms of uh, world domination. The Anglo-Saxons have done it. Other people talk about it. The Anglo-Saxons have done it. First point, have an open society. That is to say, if you th- again, think about 17th century Holland. What they said was, look, you can be Catholic, you can be Jewish, you can be Lutheran, you can be Calvinist. As long as you're not too loud and obnoxious about it, you can be an atheist. Atheists, just come on in and make money. You know? So Jews fleeing Spain and Portugal are welcome into the Netherlands to make money. But it's open in other ways. If you are, you know, your parents are peasants, you don't have to be a peasant. If you're incredibly clever and calculating, you can end up becoming a rich merchant and a power in the land. Also, you don't have to do things the way they've always been done. If you have some new idea for like how to structure a financial transaction or how to, how to make a widget or, or a new kind of widget that you want to make, or whatever, go ahead. No one is stopping you. And this open society, going back to the 17th century, has over and over again generated tremendous energy and drive, new products. You you, you look at Holland at the time, and the Dutch had already developed uh, the first joint stock companies, the first, first speculative boom and bust, the tulip bubble. They had developed the system of state finance that was taken over by the Bank of England, and still today remains the basic way that every government and every central bank around the world conducts business. Calculus, something that defeated me when I was in high school, but the Dutch apparently were very good at it. In any case, out of this little tiny set of provinces, you get tremendous energy. The British and the Americans followed this same path, and that's step one, have an open society. Step two, take the show on the road. Engage with the rest of the world. You've got all these new products. You've got all these new corporate structures, financial structures. You've got a meritocracy where your companies are increasingly not being run by the, by the brother-in-law, but by somebody who's actually good at the job. So go out there, engage, trade. Again, in the 17th century, the Dutch had a merchant fleet of 10,000 ships all over the world, all right? The British do the same thing. The Americans do the same thing. And this engagement, this match of the open society with the rest of the world produces a gusher of wealth, enormous riches. And that takes you to step three. With all that money you make from the engagement of your open society with the rest of the world, you pursue a certain geopolitical strategy. Admiral Mahan, the great American strategic writer, talked about sea power. 
And people try to reduce that sometimes to have a big navy. But actually, Mahan's concept was, was much smarter, much more thoroughgoing. But here's the basic idea. You're trading all over the world. So what do you protect? You protect the sea lanes, the routes for your commerce. You make sure that wherever your traders are, wherever they are, you're able to protect them. And sometimes, you know, to sort of squelch annoying people who don't seem to want to trade with your traders the way you'd like them to be traded with. But in any case, you engage with the rest of the world. You pursue this sea power strategy. And very crucially, when it comes to the big geopolitical theaters of the world, you don't do what traditional empires have done. That is, you know, if you're Rome, you try to conquer everything. If you're China, you basically, you know, the pharaoh, whoever he is, wants to rule as far as the eye can see. These sea powers have had a somewhat different idea, which is maintain a balance of power in key geopolitical theaters. And the idea there, the British and the Dutch did this in Europe. We did too, by the way. But it's as long as France and Germany and Italy and whatever are too busy arguing with themselves, no single one of them is going to be able to rise up, unify Europe, and use all that money and all that wealth to challenge your global strategy. So it's a kind of a divide-and-conquer concept. But again, you want a balance of power. And by the way, if you look at the, the history of American foreign policy in, for example, the Pacific Basin over the last 150 years, it's absolutely clear that we have been a classic balancing power in Asia, making alliances with weaker countries in order to prevent any single country, whoever that might be, at any given moment from dominating that region. You're listening to Council on Foreign Relations fellow Walter Russell Mead. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. On Tuesday, March 11th, Socalo presents award-winning Colombian-born journalist Silvana Paternostro, who visits Socalo to present an intimate portrait of Colombia's 40-year-old war. And on Thursday, March 20th, it's Grammy Award-winning and Oscar-nominated composer Michael Giacchino, who wrote the score for The Incredibles and Ratatouille. Admission to these and all Socalo events is free, but reservations are required. For more information or to hear past programs and lectures, just click on our website, socalola.org. That's C-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. We'll return to Council on Foreign Relations Fellow Walter Russell Mead in a moment. Stay tuned to Socalo Radio. Here's a little Public Radio 101. KPCC has a home at Pasadena City College. But the school doesn't provide money to operate KPCC. Even government funding is just a small part of KPCC's budget. Our main source of funding is listeners, like you. And that's the way it should be. Now's the time to get involved and help KPCC grow even stronger. Become a contributing member today at kpcc.org. And thanks. 89.3 KPCC reaches an audience of over half a million informed, active, and educated listeners. To learn how your organization or business can reach this audience, call Julie at 213-621-3592 or send an email to underwriting at kpcc.org. You already know how to get KPCC on your radio and your computer. Now you can get NPR and KPCC News on your cell phone or PDA. Go to kpcc.org to learn about NPR Mobile from KPCC. You can get hourly headlines, news stories, or hear the Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me quiz, all whenever it's convenient for you. NPR and KPCC News, on air, online, and now on the phone, too. Looking for some ideas on things to do, where to go, and what to see? Sign up for KPCC's monthly arts and culture newsletter. Delivered to your inbox every month, it contains information on the Southland's cultural happenings. Visit kpcc.org and click on the newsletter's link to sign up. I'm Claudia Vasquez. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. We now return to Council on Foreign Relations fellow, Walter Russell Mead. 
So you have your, your maritime system, your balance of power system, and then you come to point four of the secret plan. And that is, having built this global commercial empire, this global commercial system, you don't deny it to everybody. Now, that's what the Spanish and the Portuguese used to do. They used to try to keep other people from trading in their colonies and what have you. The Anglo-American idea was much more, okay, open it up. In other words, after World War II with Germany and Japan, they're defeated, they're in ruins. We don't say, and now we're going to discriminate against you and punish you and deny you access to resources. What we say is, hey, come on in, play by the rules, trade. You can sell us as many Volkswagens, as many Toyotas as you possibly want. Your money is as good as anybody else's. You can take your yen to the Persian Gulf and get all the energy that you can pay for. You can have all the tin. You can have all the rubber. You know, if you can pay for it, you can have it. And furthermore, if you can use all that stuff and make something that we want at a price that we like, we'll buy it. So you do, in order to be as rich as you ever dreamed of being and to have a lot of wealth and influence in the international system, you don't have to go to war with us. You don't have to try to turn down our system. You don't have to risk everything and risk ruin in a desperate struggle to try to defeat the world system. Come on in. Get rich. And you can see American foreign policy today trying to do exactly that, for example, vis-a-vis India and China. Saying, trade. Hey, sell us all the stuff. You know, knock yourselves out. Whatever you want. You know, we would just seem like, please keep the lead paint off the kids' toys. All right, stuff like, yeah, you know, but, you know, we want our own manufacturers to do that too. But basically, if you play by the rules, this system will be a cornucopia of prosperity for you. And then, however, there's, there's a sort of a, a second part to point four, a kind of a secret clause, which is, if they then you know, defy good sense and reason and still go to war with you, you cut off access to this global system. So in peace, they've developed economies that are dependent on raw materials, on trading partners, on energy resources, all kinds of things from all over the world. And then in war, you cut them off using your sea power strategy, your control of the sea lanes. Now, it's a very effective strategy. If you think about it, since 1688, when the British really got into the game, so to speak, with their glorious revolution and began to play at this strategy, the British or the Americans have been on the winning side of every major great power conflict in which they participated for more than 300 years. Now, I did say great power, so the British could lose to the Mahdi in Sudan, the Americans could lose to Ho Chi Minh in Vietnam, but the big conflicts, the ones that actually lay out the international system, the framework of the international system from one generation to the next, Either the English or the Americans or both have won every single one. The British, in fact, have only lost one. It was the American Revolution. (laughs) Now, this begins almost to look like a pattern. 300 years of unbroken victory in the great power wars that shaped the earth. And from my point of view, what this does is it presents some very powerful and compelling evidence that this geopolitical strategy is a better strategy than the strategies that other great powers have tried to use. This is the way to rule the world, or at least dominate the world. Then we come to point five, which is the most cynical and sneakiest, underhanded and most devious part of the plan, and that is the promotion of liberal values and institutions. Because what we do is we go around and we try to get other countries to make changes inside themselves that will make them better partners, better players in the system. 
So we go to China and we say, you know, we'd really like you to have free elections, human rights, and so on and so on. And they say, well, we're not going to do this. Well, at a minimum, we really do need for you to have a system of courts and a code of commercial law and an enforcement of the law of contract. So we sort of, we will sometimes start with these and work up. But in any case, the goal is, from our point of view, if you're a trading power, you've got investments, you've got people in hundreds of countries all over the world, you want them to have commercial courts. You want your property and your people to be secure. But also you want them to adopt better methods of managing their currency, organizing their central banking system, of having better infrastructure and so on. A, because it makes them more profitable to do business in or with. You can't actually make that much money selling stuff to starving people. It's just not going to happen. So you actually would like them to be prosperous to make you more prosperous, but also you want them to be happy campers in your system. You want them to like the system or at least accept the system. Critics like Noam Chomsky and others of sort of the Anglo-American liberal capitalist power plan say, well, you know, we'll, we'll basically say, well, the poverty of the third world or the periphery is necessary for the, for the working of the system. But I think if you talk to people who are really sort of involved in trying to make the system work, they believe, they honestly believe that the problems come from the countries that aren't managing their affairs, aren't, aren't figuring out how to prosper. It's much better, for example, to have a rich China with all the problems that may create than to have a poor, disgruntled China that is a constant source of trouble to itself and to everyone else. So this point five makes us feel good, and we're projecting our values, our liberal capitalist values that are pretty deeply rooted in our society after all these generations. So we like that. There are elements of these values that are universally attractive. A lot of people like the idea of liberty and democracy and so on. So it creates friends and allies for us around the world. Sure, sometimes we lose them when we're a little bit hypocritical. But, you know, we've been doing this for a very long time. And the world seems to be oddly forgiving of some of the inconsistencies in Anglo-American political behavior. But in any case... Point five, the the promotion of liberal values, practices, and institutions ends up sort of supporting the rest of this five-point plan. So that's it. That's how to rule the world. When I was a kid, they used to have this poster of a woman sitting in the middle of all of this chaos, and she was sort of saying, I could rule the world, but I can't get the parts. (laughs) So I'm at least giving you the plan, if not the parts. All right, but I think you come to another question, which is why have the Anglo-Americans been able to do this? Why have we stuck with this plan for so long? Why has the liberal capitalist approach to life been so central? And why have we been so good at it? Why have we managed to stay at the cutting edge for so long? There are basically two answers, or there's one answer which has two dimensions here. The core of it seems to me to be there is something about the religious culture of the Anglo-American world which is very comfortable with capitalism. If you think about it, capitalism is a system of permanent revolution and permanent change. In traditional empires, once, once Egypt had conquered everything, the pharaoh didn't really want to, like, change anything. Life was the way it was supposed to be. The religion taught everyone should do this year what you did last year and plan next year to do what you did this year. The same. Capitalism is a system which everything always has to be different. The competition is always coming up with different ideas. New technologies are always being introduced. Political power relations are changing as China industrializes. The shape of the international system begins to change. So capitalism is a system of permanent change. And 
religion historically can be divided into two types, according to Henri Bergson, a, a French philosopher of religion and a very interesting guy. By the way, he originated the terms open society and closed society that we use pretty frequently today. Through Karl Popper, these ideas of Bergson have been more widely adopted. But Bergson says there are two kinds of religion for two kinds of societies. A traditional closed society where everybody's doing the same thing all the time. Religion is the sort of voice in your head or experience that makes you stick with the old ways. So if you're going to violate a tribal taboo, you have bad dreams or you break out into a sweat. Or you might see the God telling you, no, don't do it, or hear a voice, or whatever it is. But it's religion enforcing a kind of a conformity. But Bergson also argues that in human nature, there's a different kind of religion, because human nature is not all about being the same thing. You know, we all started maybe in Africa, but now we are living all over the world, and people, you know, you've got Eskimos hunting whales in the ice I mean, obviously human culture has to be capable of change, and in a sense people have to want to change or welcome it or at least have a place in their head to put it. And Bergson argues that there's a form of religion also that he calls dynamic religion calling you to change. So a St. Francis of Assisi has a vision of a new way of life or a Martin Luther King. Sort of these mystics are given new visions of life, or you're given the courage to to leave your family. Now, what's interesting about this is Anglo-American individualistic Protestantism that has shaped our culture, even for people who are not neither Anglo nor American nor Protestant nor religious. This has still powerfully shaped our culture in all kinds of ways. You go back to what, what is the sort of the key story in the biblical account of faith and justification that's over and over again in the, in the English Reformation, in American evangelical preaching. It's you are saved by faith. And who's the great example of faith? It's Abraham. Because Abraham believed God. He became the father of Christians, Muslims, Jews, all kinds of things. Big deal. Worked out well. And what... What was God's call to Abraham? It was get up and go. Leave your father and your father's gods. Go to a new land. In many cultures, people feel a terrible struggle between tradition and modernity. And the feeling is that you may have to make a tragic sacrifice. To achieve modernity, you have to give up the rich human world of religion and tradition. In the Anglo-American world, going back at least 300 years, there's been a kind of a, a religious consciousness that will tell you, actually, when you change, you are fulfilling your religion. God is out there in the future waiting for you. Human fulfillment is in the future waiting for you. The meaning of life is in the future. So again, you have all kinds of Americans who have no religious orientation at all, but they'll think that their life is a special project, a mission, a journey. And they're in search of some kind of fulfillment and, and to achieve this, they'll leave family and friends. They'll move thousands of miles. They'll take all kinds of risks because they have a dream. They have a project. Fulfillment is in the future. And you connect with your real self, your true self, by giving up what you know and by rushing forward into the future. Now, I think this... Attitude, very, very widely spread, and I think as strong, if not stronger now than it's ever been, is one of the key reasons that the Anglo-Americans for the last 300 years have been so good at playing this world, world politics game that, again, depends on an open society that, that is based on change. Ideologically, you can, you can see the power of an idea 
that the Anglo-Americans had that comes again out of our historical experience. I call it the golden meme, M-E-M-E. And it's, it begins, you know, if you've ever looked at the study of the law, what you'll find is that English common law, unlike some other legal systems, doesn't come out of a grand design. You know, nobody sort of wrote it down one day. What happens is all over England, you have all of these little villages and everyone is fighting over like whose cow it is. Or, you know, who has the right to fish in the mill pond from Trinity to Whitsunday or whatever, you know, may be going on. They may be fighting about. And each of these cases gets decided according to the custom of the people and the village. And these decisions become precedents that are then the basis for other decisions. Now, over hundreds of years, these records of these little disputes formed a system of jurisprudence that by the time the English began to theorize about this in the 17th century was looking like a pretty elegant system and a pretty workable system. And today, even more so that our system, the system of common law that decides all these incredibly complex disputes has its roots in these 11th century arguments about whether the priest gets the right to the cow's first milk on Easter Sunday or something like that. And no one planned it. No one designed it. It grew. The English looked at their political system, and they saw the same thing. The English don't have a written constitution. What happened was over hundreds of years, the kings were fighting for the king's power. The lords, the barons were fighting for what they wanted. The commons were fighting, whatever. Everybody was kind of, in a way, selfishly trying to just get their own. But what emerges from this struggle is a harmonious, balanced constitution. At least that's what the English say about their constitution. You're listening to Council on Foreign Relations Fellow, Walter Russell Mead. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. For information or to listen to past broadcasts, just click on our website, socalola.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A dot O-R-G. We'll return to Council on Foreign Relations Fellow, Walter Russell Mead, in a moment. Stay tuned to Socalo Radio. It's easy to think public radio is free, but of course you know it's not. Reporters cost money, NPR News costs money, and KPCC has operating expenses like any organization or business. We don't cover these costs with government funding or commercials. We rely on listeners like you as the most reliable way to pay for the news you hear every day. Do your part and become a contributing member today at kpcc.org. And thanks. Weekdays on 89.3 KPCC. It's Morning Edition from NPR News. Good morning. I'm Steve Inskeep. From the studios of NPR West, this is Day to Day. I'm Alex Cohen. I'm Madeline Brand, coming up practicing. From NPR News, this is All Things Considered. I'm Robert Siegel. This is Talk of the Nation. I'm Neil Conan in Washington. Morning Edition, Day to Day. All Things Considered. Talk of the Nation. More NPR News than anywhere else on 89.3 KPCC. Think elections. Think election coverage without the hype and without the hollering. Think 89.3 KPCC and kpcc.org. Programming is supported by KOCE-TV, presenting Happiness Prescription with Deepak Chopra, a journey beginning with the Buddha's Four Noble Truths and ending with a prescription for living life mindfully and joyfully, this month on KOCE-TV. I'm Claudia Vasquez. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. We now return to Council on Foreign Relations Fellow Walter Russell Mead. No great plan, it emerges. Think about Adam Smith's economic theory that out of the 
selfish struggles of everybody just trying to kind of settle their own problems and get what they need and what they want. Out of this, a rich, complex, diversified economy emerges, and it works better than a planned economy. The invisible hand that Adam Smith believed was bringing order out of the economy is the invisible hand that people saw bringing English common law into a stately system of jurisprudence or the English system. In America, we've bought this hook, line, and sinker, and not just about economics. Our Madisonian constitutional system, the executive, the legislature, and the judicial, each trying to increase its own power. And so we have this system of government that at least ostensibly provides good government based on the selfish squabbling of politicians, factions, and interest groups. And that we're better off with this struggle than with some wise ruler who sort of lays down the path and the plan that we should all follow. Darwin's theory of evolution, by the way, is another example of the sort of all these selfish struggles of these little animals to survive. And what the, the net result of it is more and more complex and interesting animals in more and more complex and interdependent ecologies. So this is the way the Anglo-American mind sort of comes at all kinds of problems. This is why we are so optimistic. This is why after World War I, Woodrow Wilson says, this is a war to end war. The League of Nations is now going to make an end to war. This is why Franklin Roosevelt basically said the same thing after World War II. It's why George H.W. Bush saw a new world order after the Cold War. It's why even now, why Bush and the neocons saw harmonious democracy emerging out of the chaos of the Middle East. But it's why many of Bush's most passionate critics also see a harmonious world of international institutions and peace emerging if we just stop ruining it, you know, if we get out of the way and let the process of development go. We are optimists. We're Whigs is the old word for this kind of thinking and this kind of history. We believe that an invisible hand is bringing order out of chaos. And to some degree, the more chaos we see, the more optimistic we are that some, something really terrific must be coming if we've got all of this mess in trouble. So this should be, you know, a good year. Now, I don't think it's going to happen. I, I don't actually think this utopia is around the corner. We can get into that a little bit in the Q&A if uh, you want. But I do want to close by making the point that many people today are now as convinced as they possibly can be that America, the, this system is finally beginning to decline. You know, the rise of Asia, America's weakness in our debts, different people have different theories, but this is sort of another one of those declinist moments. By the way, we tend to alternate. We're kind of manic depressive as a culture, <laughs> bipolar. In 1989, it was a real up, happy time, end of history, and now it's kind of, oh, it's all over. In fact, I think the truth is more or less between those, those extremes. And I'll just say, if, if we look at the rise of Asia, where many people see the end of the Anglo-American or the Western era, whatever you want to call it, is taking shape, I'd actually say from the standpoint of a crafty old Anglo-American balance of power maritime system like ours, Asia doesn't look that bad. Number one, if they're going to be nuclear superpowers in Asia with more than a billion people in them, isn't it nice that there's two instead of just one? Because if you really think, you know, the thing that we probably would need to, to be concerned most about is that one Asian country would dominate that region and then as Germany tried to do with Europe or Japan tried to do in Asia in the 1940s, then wield that power into a force which could contest for global domination. You know, that would be a headache for us. That would be a problem. But if you think about Asia, you've got India, you've got China, and don't anybody forget about Japan, which is not really going anywhere. Algebraically, A, B, and C... 
A plus B in Asia is likely to be greater than or equal to C for a very long time, that no one of those countries is likely to be able to dominate the other two. And if you then add to that that there's D, the United States, the offshore maritime power that wants to maintain a balance of power in Asia, it looks unlikely that Asia is about to produce a successful challenger to a global system which has withstood many challenges and many shocks over the last 300 years. Now, people will sometimes talk also about changes in the world economy as driving a kind of an American decline, you know, that our, the proportion of America's GDP to the global GDP is going down, and so we're not going to be able to sustain this kind of global position. Well, it's interesting, first of all, to, to look, uh, if you look in 1700, you know what country had the largest GDP in the world? It was, of course, China. It had the largest population in the world, also in 1700. But the next 200 years were not known as the age of China. So the correlation between GDP and power and population and power is not simple. When the wars between Britain and France started, Britain had about one-third the population of France and about half its GDP. And yet Britain defeated France in the wars of the 18th century. So the race is not always to the swift. However, in terms of just global weight in the world at its peak, when the British Empire was as strong and influential as it ever was, which had been about the 1870s, it was responsible for something like 7% of global GDP. 7%. The U.S. today is responsible, depending on how you measure it, for about 23%. And while our share is projected to gradually decline, it's not actually projected to gradually decline by very much. So that if you look at the people who project global GDP up to 2050, which strikes me as a very risky business, they'll generally tell you that the U.S. economy may go from 23% of global GDP to 18% of global GDP in that time. In other words, not a big shift. And in 2050, we are likely to be two to three times the size of Britain's economy relative to the rest of the world at the peak of the British Empire. So I'm afraid that my depressing forecast is, at least on one level, more of the same. This Anglo-American system is likely to continue to play a, a unique role in international relations, Its power is likely to fluctuate up and down. If you look at British history, there were times when it it was sort of a superpower. There were times when it was one among many. So I think we might well see some fluctuations in that. But we're unlikely to see utopia. We're unlikely to see collapse. We are, however, likely to see some rather dramatic times. Uh, The last 300 years haven't been particularly calm historically. Lots of excitement, lots of noise, unfortunately lots of wars. I don't actually see that many reasons to believe that the 21st century will be that different. So that is at least an introduction to sort of the five-point plan to conquer the world and then not really know what to do with it when you've (laughs) fulfilled your plan. That seems to be as far as we've gone, and this would be a good time maybe to take some questions or comments from the floor. Hi, this is Ishtiak Chisti. It seems like what you're talking about is a spreading and implementation of an idea which started with the Dutch and then the English hijacked it and ultimately the Americans. Now, if you carry that analogy a little further, that the idea is the power, not which country implements it. Now, what if China and India and Japan, I guess Japan to a certain extent has already adopted it, and India takes over and China, but they take this idea and this mercantile idea of yours and moves forward and starts to dominate the world. Now, is that a bad thing or a good thing? Well, I would say have at it. I mean, I think the more open the world is, I suppose I'm this Anglo-American myself, I think open, open competition is a good thing. But one thing that is interesting is that that is in some ways the way the Americans took it over from the British by playing the game better. 
I personally think that China and India and even Japan have much further to go before they're, they're ready to do this. That if we look at the state of China's institutions, you know, does China have the capacity to govern itself in, an, in a relatively open and transparent way? Most people who study, for example, the Chinese financial market would say that really the Chinese financial system remains completely focused on policy lending and state-driven and corrupt bargains. The problems we have with mortgage crisis and so on pale into insignificance because really they, they lack the ability to develop this particular kind of infrastructure. And that's the heart of capitalism is a financial system. And I think if we look at some of the domestic debates in India, we can see that the you know, India has a lot of debating to, to do before it's ready to adopt the kinds of policies that could bring out its fullest potential as a competitor. My guess would be that both of these countries are going to be continued to be somewhat slowed in the 21st century in their development by primarily political problems that reflect a pace of economic development that demands a faster social development than they can quite supply, that that will be the chief constraint on their growth. However, in the long run, who knows? One of the things about this kind of uh, belief system, that this kind of open society approach, is unlike forms of determinism, I can't tell you where it's going to lead. It's open. Over the last week, there have been a few indications in the press that someone in a position of authority in England, and I don't remember who it was, has indicated that in England it might be necessary to adopt some aspects of the Sharia into English law in order to accommodate the growing Muslim population. And I'm wondering if you're familiar with that and could comment on that. Well, I haven't read his comments, but uh, the person who, who you're thinking about is the Archbishop of Canterbury. He is the sort of symbolic head of the Anglican Communion. As far as I can gather, what he was trying to say and didn't say very well was that to some degree the laws have to follow people's sense of right and wrong. And that given the large number of Muslims who live in England now, it was going to be useful to be able to look at things like inheritance law and other things where Sharia law provides a different uh, approach than the English common law systems or others. It's a debatable proposition. He very quickly then went on to say he did not mean that women should wear burqas and so on and so forth. I think it's a discussion that people will be having. But I think a much more profound discussion is, is, is the one that's taking place in Islam today. I was in uh, Turkey a couple of weeks ago meeting with a Turkish journalist, Mustafa Akyol, who's a supporter of the AK Islamist Party. And he's a big supporter of ending the ban on headscarves on liberal grounds. And Mustafa makes the argument and publishes it that Islam needs to embrace liberalism because that's the best basis for an Islamic society. And he makes arguments from American history about how the separation of church and state is one of the reasons that American religion is, is vibrant today while in Europe, where they kept the state-supported churches, religion largely died out. So I think what's happening is in this world today where all kinds of cultures and people are encountering each other much more deeply and, and intimately than we did in the past, all of us are sitting around scratching our heads trying to think about what does it mean to live in a world or a country that's partly Muslim, partly Christian, what have you, uh, what do I need to learn from these people and where do I need to protect my values against these people. I don't know that the Archbishop of Canterbury has necessarily come up with the last word on this subject, but I think that the line of inquiry that he's opening is kind of an inevitable one in the world that we live in. Thank you. My name is Patrick. Um, I was wondering, what role do you give science in conquering and controlling the world and how these three countries have done this? Well, again, one of the nice things about an open society is if you come up with a scientific theory that the church doesn't like, they don't burn you at the stake. They just say nasty things about you in church. An openness to science is a key element of an open society. I would argue that if you look at Francis Bacon, in many ways the kind of 
man who developed the philosophy behind science. And, and it was, I think, it was this classic Anglo-American order emerging from, from below. Because what he says is, before him, the idea had really been the scientists sort of had these big principles of how the universe should work. And they would deduce down from big overarching principles or authorities what must be happening in this particular case. But Francis Bacon said, wait a minute, that's not the way to do it. You need to do it the other way around. What you need to do is just go very humbly and systematically and track down little facts and try to find out what's actually going on in this and that. And then gradually from an accumulation of little facts, you will be able to develop these larger, richer structures. The way that English common law, out of little arguments over whose cow it was, comes to principles of jurisprudence that guide very complex societies. So I would actually argue that, that science is one of the modes of an open society, scientific inquiry, and is philosophically and politically deeply related to these other elements of what makes an open society. You've been listening to Council on Foreign Relations fellow Walter Russell Mead. This is Socalo Radio, the on-air home of the Socalo Public Square Lecture Series, LA's free, eclectic, and roving cultural forum. I'm Claudia Vasquez. Socalo Radio is supported by a generous grant from the James Irvine Foundation and by the California Endowment. Catch us again next Sunday, or we'll see you at one of our free live events around town. For more information, go to SocaloLA.org. That's Z-O-C-A-L-O-L-A.org. The executive producer for Socalo Radio is Peter Stensholl. Douglas Gary is our engineer. Thank you for tuning in. KPCC brings you in-depth news without commercials. You make that possible when taking the step from KPCC listener to KPCC contributing member. Take that step today at kpcc.org. And thanks. Hello, I'm Eli Wallach. When I'm asked to share my life story, it's simple. It's just the good, the bad, and me. Have you ever noticed that life revolves around a set of stories? Everything is breaking news and everyone has something to share. With so many things happening, you need one source for in-depth news and intelligent talk. You've selected 89.3 KPCC as your connection to the stories that surround